the History Channel original podcast. Hey there, Sally here. Before we get started, we have a little something special for you. August is going to be Arts and Culture Month here at History This Week. That means every week in August, we are exploring important moments in literature, poetry, painting, and Winnie the Pooh. We'll talk about the joke at the center of Robert Frost's legacy, a band of pop music pirates, the Mona Lisa's heist, and, yes, the birth of Winnie the Pooh. So check out Arts and Culture Month on History This Week every Monday in August. Now, onto the show. History This Week, August 2nd, 1915. I'm Sally Helm. The poem appears in print for the first time this week, from Louisville, Kentucky, to York, Pennsylvania, to Rutland, Vermont. And every reader, in every place, is transported to the same leafy path. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair. And having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though, as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere Somewhere ages ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I... I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. In that first week of August, 1915, readers get introduced to The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. It is an immediate hit, and it will go on to become one of the most popular and well-known poems in American history. For many, it is about a spirit of individualism, forging your own path. And yet... Robert Frost himself may have had something completely different in mind. It's generally speaking the most misunderstood poem in the history of American literature. Today, The Road Not Taken. What or who inspired Frost to write this iconic poem? And What is it really saying about making a choice? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The road not taken is taught in high school classrooms, in university seminars. It's been read at many a graduation. It provides the title for, among other things, a Melissa Etheridge album, a self-help book, and a video game. It's even in this 2008 Ford commercial that aired in New Zealand. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. 
the narrator reads this poem in full over visuals of a young man doing things like picking up a hitchhiker or walking along a rainy road while biting into a crust of pizza. This is a poem that was published in 1915, being used almost a century later to sell cars. One way to think about the popularity of the poem is to think about the strange places that it appears, places that you would never expect a poem to appear. That's David Orr. He's an English professor at Rutgers University and a poet himself. He wrote about this commercial and about the many other places that this poem pops up in his book, which is called The Road Not Taken, Finding America in the Poem Everyone Loves and Almost Everyone Gets Wrong. What's interesting about the commercial is that the poem's not identified. Robert Frost isn't identified. It's just assumed that this audience of people in New Zealand will know this poem. And there's so few things, well, so few poems, so few things in general you could say something like that about. The Road Not Taken is everywhere. Jay Perini first read it as a ninth grader. And then it showed up again the following year in his English class. My 10th grade English teacher actually was teaching this poem. And she had a copy of the last lines. Two roads that verged in a wooden eye, I took the road less traveled by, and that made all the difference, written out in her very fine handwriting, framed behind glass, and it was behind her desk. Perini is now an English professor at Middlebury College, a poet, author of the biography Robert Frost, A Life, and a general Robert Frost superfan. Sometimes he even finds himself speaking like Frost. Once my wife said to me, I was talking in bed one night, she said, Jay, I hate to put this to you bluntly, but you are not Robert Frost. (laughs) Man, how'd you take it? (laughs) I didn't take it well. (laughs) Back in that 10th grade classroom, Perini's teacher told him what this famous Frost poem meant. She said, class, pay attention to this poem. It's got a message you need to pay attention to. You've got to be your own man. As they say now in the 60s, you've got to do your own thing. And that is the standard interpretation of the poem. I would say that 90%, maybe 99% of Americans think this is a poem telling readers to find the road less traveled and to go down that road for good in your life. By the 1960s, when Perini is sitting in this English classroom, Robert Frost is a major celebrity. He has won the Congressional Gold Medal for his poetry. He recited a poem at John F. Kennedy's inauguration. As Professor David Orr put it, If you had like a Mount Rushmore of American poetry, that would be the very first face, the granite face of Robert Frost. Frost's poems are written in clear, accessible language. He's not seen as an elitist. In the popular imagination, Frost is this rural farmer poet who goes out and works in the field or uh, handles the animals and then goes in and writes a poem. Which is sort of right. I mean, he did actually farm. It's not, that's not a, a fiction. But his farming career was maybe five or six years uh, of fairly indifferent chicken farming. But he does have a real connection to that world. And he comes to be closely associated with the particular region where he and his wife were raising those chickens. Professor Perini told us, Vermont and New Hampshire is recorded all the micro-seasons by Robert Frost. You know, he stood in that country north of Boston, this imaginary territory, the land of paper birches bending left and right, hemlocks with snow on them. 
But there's a lot about Frost's life that doesn't make it into the popular image. Like, although people sometimes think of him as a New England poet, he was actually born in San Francisco. And while many read his poems as cheerful little ditties about a nice rural life... I'd say most of his great poems are poems of self-doubt, poems of existential anguish, poems of darkness. Robert Frost was actually a very, he was a very depressed guy. I mean, he would spend six weeks with all of the curtains drawn, staying in his bedroom and never going outside. These were in his depressive phases. Then when he was in his manic phases, he'd go walking through the woods through the night. Sometimes 12 hours at a time. Most people don't know that. Frost led a tragic life, you know. Very few of his children made it happily into adulthood. He had a very unhappy marriage to his wife, Eleanor. On her deathbed, she she barred the door and said to the doctor, don't let him into my bedroom. And then Frost was jealous of other poets, you know. I think a lot of major poets wished that they were the only one in the world and that every other poet was dead. And Frost was like that, you know. He was terribly jealous. And in his early career, Frost had a lot to be jealous of. Although those years on the farm were relatively happy ones, by his late 30s... He'd only published half a dozen poems, and in very obscure places. His first poems were published not in Poetry Magazine, but in Poultry Magazine, Chickens. (laughs) So Frost was, uh, you know, uh, basically the most obscure poet in the universe when he took his family off, sold the chicken farm, and at the age of, what, 38 or so, moved, moved... to England to try and do a poetic reset. In 1912, he moves his family to London in hopes that he might find more literary success in England. And almost immediately, he has a stroke of luck. He wasn't very long living outside of London when he was introduced to Ezra Pound. And and Pound, who was the kind of uh, major domo, the kind of master of ceremonies of modernism, said, let me see your work, uh, Robert. And Robert Frost brought him a whole bunch of his poems. And Ezra Pound said, you're a genius. This is a whole new voice in in American literature. Pound introduces Frost to a small publisher who agrees to publish two books of his poems. Boy's Will and North of Boston, which is his, many ways, his greatest book, 18 poems. Frost is just about 40 and finally getting some attention. And pretty soon, his book makes it into the hands of a successful British critic a few years younger than he is, a man Perini describes as movie star handsome, Edward Thomas. Edward Thomas had published 20 books by that time, 20 books. He was immensely prolific. He made his living as, he considered himself a hack writer. He reviewed books. He, he meditated on the English countryside. He'd write about any subject he could, anything to make some money. But he'd never written one poem. Even though he loved poetry. And he came to love Frost's poems in particular. The two men meet through the literary scene, and they become good friends. They have a lot in common. For one thing, Thomas, too, suffered from depression. And, like Frost, he would go on walks to manage his moods. I think this is actually what they had in common. I mean, Edward Thomas would go off often for two months at a time, walking in the countryside, leaving his wife to look after the children. Two months? Two months. It makes Frost's 12-hour walks look downright short. When the English go for a walk, 
they go for a walk. I mean, I've, <laughs> I, I spent 10 years in England, and when I, I, I'm always terrified when somebody said, would you like a walk? Because you were like, oh, no, we're going to be gone I, for oh, two no, months. Oh, no, we're going to be gone for days. <laughs> Frost loved the long walks, and he and Thomas both also loved to talk. And so when you take two walkers and put together two talkers, especially Frost, Frost said, let's go on our talking walks. That's what he called them, our talking walks. In the quiet of the English countryside, they'd discuss poetry, philosophy, politics. And they'd come to a point where uh, Frost would say, here's the, here's the way it should be. And, and Edward Thomas would say, well, I don't know, maybe it should be this other way, but I don't know, maybe you're right. The two men were similar in so many ways, but this was a major difference. Thomas. He was the most indecisive man in the universe, as Frost quickly discerned. On the other hand? Frost was, I would say, pretty damn decisive. When he made up, I mean, he, yeah, he, had his, he was probably just normal. <laughs> he would make decisions. Um, sometimes they were not great decisions, and then he would change his mind again. But he was nothing like Edward Thomas, who was nothing if not a master of indecision. And this difference between them? It was reified in the most concrete way when they'd come to these, as you do when you're going for walks, endless forks in the road. And uh, Edward Thomas never knew which one they should take. And, and so he'd say they'd finally make a decision to go down one road. And, and, and Thomas kept saying, you know, I really think... That was a mistake. We should have taken the other road. And, and, and Frost thought this was rather hilarious. He teased his friend about his indecisiveness and his small regrets. The two of them got incredibly close. In their long walks and talks, they developed such a friendship that they made a plan that Edward Thomas said, we're going to move with you to the White Mountains of, of New Hampshire and, and, and we'll become farmers and teachers and poets together. But in the late summer of 1914, the two men get some news that throws a wrench in those plans. They were sitting on a, a little turnstile in Little Iddens in Gloucestershire when um, a man went by with a newspaper and said, War declared. England is at war. World War I has just broken out. And they both were very annoyed by this and thought it was foolish and just insane. The United States is so far maintaining its neutrality, and the idea of moving back there is becoming more and more real for Frost. He misses New England, his family is running low on money. Plus, one of his books is about to be published in the U.S., which is going to change things more than he knows. Frost had no idea what effect they would have. He didn't realize that he would be acclaimed as a very important poet almost instantaneously. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In February of 1915, Frost and his family take an ocean liner from Liverpool back to New York. When they arrive... Frost, characteristically, goes for a walk. He finds himself on 42nd Street. And he went up to a newsstand, and he happened to see in the newsstand the New Republic. He opens it, flips to the reviews, and sees a review of his own book. And it said, America has a new voice in poetry, Robert Frost. He was startled. And the truth is, from that moment on, Frost was a a, a well-known poet. And his reputation was like a snowball, gathering, 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 gathering. People are reading his poems, quoting them to each other. Frost is enjoying his newfound success. And he's also continuing to write. We don't know exactly when, but at some point between 1914 and 1915, he gets the idea for a new poem. I remember one of his letters he said, or notebooks, he says, you know, I just heard a voice. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And then it just flowed from there, just naturally. Because he was a poet and used to thinking in these ways, and he developed that imagery of the two roads. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. That's Professor David Orr again. He told us Frost was thinking of those walks with Edward Thomas in the British countryside, when he'd be standing at a crossroads, so torn about which path to take. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. If you listen for it, you can start to hear an indecisive mind at work. Perhaps the better claim. But no, then again, really, the two paths are about the same. They both that morning equally lay. Then you can hear the speaker interrupt his own train of thought with an exclamation. Oh, I kept the first for another day. He thinks he'll come back. But then, a line later, yet... Knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. Okay, so maybe he won't. As Frost tells it, he wrote the poem as a bit of a portrait of Thomas, an affectionate, joking portrait, not not a mean portrait, as a somewhat indecisive figure who couldn't really make up his mind about what to do. In the spring of 1915, Frost has a completed draft of the poem then called Two Roads. Frost first sent the poem to Thomas, and just the poem, nothing else, no clarifying text, no letter, just the poem by itself. Thomas reads it and responds. He apparently referred to the poem as being staggering. So then Frost responded to that letter, saying, well, could you say a little bit more about this poem? Clearly hoping that Thomas would connect the poem to himself. But in Thomas's response, it's clear to Frost that he still doesn't see it's about him. So then Frost writes back, and we're now on our fifth letter, June 26th of 1915, and he says, 
Methinks thou strikest too hard in so small a matter. A tap would have settled my poem. Basically, you're taking this poem too seriously. There's some fun to it that you're missing. In this letter, Frost references the sigh in the famous last stanza. He says, quote, The sigh was a mock sigh. Here's the passage. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The end of the poem feels a certain way. It feels affirmative. You know, it feels like the idea is we take these challenging paths and we end up being the unique person that we are. It feels that way. But if you actually look at the poem, it's not that way. The most notable thing that people seem to miss is the fact that the choice is a bit of an illusion. Remember, Frost said in those earlier lines that in some ways the paths were really about the same. Both that morning equally lay. And leaves no step had trodden black. So what he's saying is, it's kind of hard to tell one from the other. And once you realize that's what he's saying, then the last stanza takes on a very different meaning. What he's really telling you is, sometime in the future, I will tell a story about this decision that will be essentially a false story. I will be saying I did things for this reason, but really I didn't even know, and it was almost an operation of chance. So in that sense, the poem could be seen as being about the self-deceptions that we create to explain our lives. This wasn't such a big, important choice after all. Frost is poking a bit of fun at his friend for obsessing over every decision. When Thomas writes back, it seems that he's starting to get Frost's intention. But it took a while. Six letters. And bear in mind, again, Edward Thomas was one of the best readers of his day. So it's hardly surprising that audiences ever since have been baffled by this poem. Soon after this last exchange, indecisive Edward Thomas makes a very serious choice. He decides to enlist in the army. Here's Professor Jay Perini. I think that by, say, 1914-15, Edward Thomas had kind of reached some kind of emotional limit. And he thought that going into the war would somehow liberate him. It would be a passage that would be, you know, defining he would finally make a choice. For Frost... It was a terrible blow. I mean, Frost thought it was foolishness. Around the time that Thomas goes off to war, this poem, now titled The Road Not Taken, is published. To great acclaim. That was one of Frost's few poems that early on found a wide readership, found itself being endlessly quoted. And I think it's because it had that homey ending. I took the road less traveled by, and that made all the difference. Uh, Well, that stays with people, and um, it sort of was significant in their lives. And so it seemed to teach them something. They loved the wisdom of that, even though they got it wrong. (laughs) Wrong in that they're not focusing on the fact that the paths are the same. They're taking the whole thing seriously, the way Thomas did. Now, Frost was a great poet. And so it is almost certain that he knew this poem would be read the way it was. It's it, it, In Frost from the beginning was that desire not to be read clearly by too many people. Frost had a belief that there was a deep core of meaning in his work, which there is, but to get at it, you had to move through layers and layers 
Here's how Professor David Orr put it. This is a poem that uh, puts on the costume of a poem that is about individualism and the triumphs of individualism. And it puts on the costume so successfully that the costume becomes a part of it, in a way. There is no real poem. There's different faces of the poem, and some of them are more persuasive than others. Some of the faces are, are drawn in greater detail than others, but no one of them really completely dominates. Perini told us that's part of what makes this such a rich poem, one you can keep returning to. Every time I read the poem, frankly, I feel like I've got a whole new sense of it. Every single time I read the poem, and I've read it probably a thousand times, and, and over and over again, every time it means something different to me. Perini told us in our interview he thought of the poem just the other day. I was walking in the woods, and I stepped on some old dead leaves, and I looked back, and my steps were black, and I thought, oh my God, there, there you go. Just think, I'm both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. I thought, oh my God, Frost is such an immediate observer of everything around him, and everything takes on meaning. Yeah, that's so interesting. You're right. I'm thinking about the blackened leaves now, and I'm like, oh, right. It could be almost a dark image, like the sort of something pristine turned trodden. And it's a comforting one. It's like, oh, there's been company along this road before. Like, there is so much to it. Think of it. Those those are two very different meanings, but parallel meanings. Mm -hmm. And they're both, I mean, Frost was big on the idea that, you know, you should be able to hold more than two or three potentially opposite things in your head at the same time. In that last stanza, Perini said... Frost wasn't just poking fun at his friend's indecision. I will be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. You know, that's, you know, that's a sigh of regret. It's also a bit of a humorous sigh, too. I think Frost was able to forgive himself uh, in, in ways that Edward Thomas couldn't. And I was thinking of saying to Thomas, look, you, you, you'll, you'll make choices, and then you'll come to regret the choices, but give yourself a break. Be forgiving to your younger self or your your middle-aged self. You know, you're going to make wrong choices all the time. We all do. But, you you know, live with it. Learn to flow. You know, move along with it. Edward Thomas's big choice to go to war ends in tragedy. He dies in battle on Easter Monday, 1917. Frost is devastated. This was the, the best friend Frost ever had in his whole life. He never had another friend like Edward Thomas. Reading The Road Not Taken in the wake of that tragedy, the last stanza takes on new meaning yet again. Thomas's choice did make all the difference. Of course, he didn't know when he enlisted that he would end up killed. He might just as easily have ended up a war hero. We can't know when we're presented with this bifurcation in the woods. What road will lead one way, what road will lead another way. It's only in retrospect that we have any idea what our choices meant to us. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. I'm sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. That's Robert Frost reading the poem at Middlebury College in 1953. 
Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by Ben Bickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer, and our editor and sound designer is Jonathan Seary. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.